Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I too own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, even though, Dan, the annuals, they still don't count. Well, welcome everybody to the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this special review episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Today on the show, Dan and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, Number 62, Legacy Number 863, titled Wag the Gog. Waka Waka. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man Number 62 was written by Nick Spencer, with art by Patrick Gleason, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VCs Joe Caramanga and a cover by Patrick Leeson and Edgar Delgado. This issue was first released on March 24th, 2021. Dan, it's issue two of the new suit era. Why don't we get right into it? Mark, I think my kind of like first real thought about this and kind of reflecting on the past, not just three, but maybe five or six issues is I'm enjoying this book getting into a groove of not being a big event. Like it it feels like it's a regular check in in the Spider-Man's world with supporting cast characters doing their things. I don't know that I felt like this issue was like a like a home run, but you know, I, there's a cover which accurately de- depicts things that are going on inside of it that I'll, that are memorable. Like I'll look at that cover and I'll go, "Oh yes, right, that was the issue where God got really big and tore his way through the city." And I know that that seems like faint praise, but for a book that's kind of been all over the place, I do feel like we're settling into a bit of a groove here. Like this feels like a normal run of Spider-Man that I would have expected from Nick Spencer. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that, you know, this is probably more reflective of what we were getting the first six months or so of the Spencer run before, you know, we had whatever random event du jour kind of interjecting itself into the book. And then frankly, you know, even Spencer's own events being interjected into the book. You know, this is, we're we're kind of calling back obviously to a bunch of storylines from earlier in the the run here but but you're right i mean this is this is kind of like that you know that trademark connecting thread spider-man stuff that i mean not only do what would i expect that from spencer but i just kind of expect it from this book period you know like this is this is where the book 
to me has always been at the best when it's kind of grounded yet still moving forward and having fun within its own universe without getting too ahead of itself, if that makes sense. I'm not trying to advocate for complacency, but you know, there, there, there's something, there's something kind of lovely and familiar about Spider-Man having a fun team up and taking on street level goons, a la Kingpin and Tombstone and Hammerhead and, and all of the characters that are, that are coming up in this run, supposedly. So I enjoyed it. It's not groundbreaking or revolutionary. And there are some general issues that we're going to get into that are kind of some demerits on the story, but like Overall, I, I enjoyed reading this comic. There was nothing nothing to be like, ah, oh, you know, why am I reading this book still? I mean, like this is this is kind of the Spider-Man that I'm generally here for. Yeah, and um, I think kind of supplementing that is just the in- incredible artistry from Patrick Gleason. There is like beautiful looking art, and then there's just great storytelling that goes you know along with art, and I think that's the true hallmark of a. Uh, of a strong comic book artist. And and I think you and I are pretty good about pointing this out when we experience it. I think back to that Mark Bagley issue that kicked off. Not, what was the story before Last Remains? Sin's Rising. Sin's Rising. Or, yeah, yeah, there yeah. we go. That first issue with the Sin Eater, which, which had really beautiful storytelling in, in how its panels were constructed. And I think... You know, Gleason for all of his kind of like uh, big bombast. And, and, and I'll say it, this issue's art is some of the most indulgent comic book art I've ever seen. I mean, like there is not a quiet panel in the mix. I mean, that's not true because we do get some really grounded stuff with the bugle later on. But this this opening is so, I mean, there are really radical experiments in style that are going on here. I mean, even just from the first panel where you've got like Kingpin's eyes just like sunken into his face in shadow that look almost like sunglasses. I mean, it, it, it's a unique visual image and it doesn't let up, but I don't think it does so at the sake of storytelling. In many ways, it enhances the storytelling. If anything, this issue, as, as much as we talk about story from Spencer, I think Gleason takes an issue that would have been otherwise, I think, really unremarkable. And that's not like a bad thing. It's a really solid issue. He injects a life into it that makes it, you know, stand on its own. There are images in this that I don't know if they're seared into my memory, but really exciting comic book art and good storytelling. And I, I think it's worth like, you know, promote uh, shouting this, that like, you know, this is a true collaborative storyteller in Gleason that we have here. You know, it's funny, like, I mean, you talk about kind of the bombast and the indulgence of the of the art in a good way here. You know, what kind of surprised me about it, and I shouldn't say surprised because Gleason, Gleason is an excellent artist, but like, you know, frankly, a lot of the earlier work related to the elements of this arc uh, were done by Ryan Otley. And I and I honestly thought it was some of Otley's best work on the book during his run here. And frankly, I like, you know, and this is not a, to throw shade at Otley. I thought he's great. Gleason's art here made me not miss Otley. Like, you know, like it, 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 I kind of felt that even even some of the really strong stuff that Gleason had been doing, he's been doing a lot of strong stuff on this book. You know, like the Otley Spencer stuff seemed to be kind of where the book was at its peak. You know, this this book kind of put to rest any any fears about just how visually dynamic it could be with with Gleason kind of running the, running the show, so to speak. Like you said, everything else is more or less. I, I agree with what you were saying in terms of what what an artist of Gleason's caliber can do for the storytelling element. 
why don't we talk a little bit about some of the specific plot beats here? Because, I mean, like, it's kind of a mixed bag. There's some fun things that happen here, but also some stuff that, you know, either feels like a missed opportunity or a little unearned, and, and we can kind of get into the nitty-gritty of that. Well, sure. I mean, I, I'll make the bridge in talking about the art to the kind of opening of the book, which is, you know, Kingpin, you know, Spider-Man racing to, like, Boomerang and Gog's side. I, I'm not quite sure how he knows you know, the, the the details of that. And Kingpin is communicating with Bullseye, like we saw at the end of the previous issue. And, you know, talking about the art, you know, Kingpin calls the take the shot on, on Gog. And we've got this full page of Spider-Man silhouetted against like a building. And there's like a graphite style drawing of the Kingpin. And it's big, expressive red letters of the shot. And this like graffiti-like coloring. It's really a striking page to sell the drama. I guess what we presume is the death of Gog, but is ultimately Gog's collar being shot off. You know, obviously triggering Gog to unleash his shape-shifting powers, which we're now aware of. And again, the the it's it's the art here. You know, this is just a you know whatever story. I don't really understand Kingpin's plan. <laughs> here it doesn't make much sense to me i i like if, if his goal was to like piss off boomerang I, i'm not quite sure why it needed to take this particular form it seems quite indirect well um, well, well let's be I, I don't mean to cut you off here dan but let's, yeah, yeah, let's go be ahead, honest yeah. let's be honest here this is this is you know sound the the kindred alarm or the or the mephisto alarm but i mean this is this is frankly a direct callback to you know the aftermath of of was it back in black when, when you know, before one more day, frankly, when, you know, the, the Kingpin had the assassin, you know, was supposed to go after Peter, but it took out Aunt May. I mean, like, this is all, to, to me, this all seems to be kind of a direct callback to that, which, you know, we kind of seem to be moving in that direction and other storyline elements as well. Like, we're, 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 we're going head on into one more day here, you know, whether whether this is truly a logical move that someone with the with the acumen of Kingpin would make, I don't know. But, you know, for if if the goal of this story is to kind of bring back all of the, the JMS era, <laughs> I think, you know, mission, <laughs> mission accomplished, right? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, it, it's hard to, like, see a sniper and Kingpin and not make that connection in the pages of a Spider-Man comic. To what point that's trying to make, I'm I'm unclear, but you're right, the the... The and uh, the analog is set up, so we get this like big kind of gog action scene where <laughs> they're trying to get the collar back on him, and I thought this was all great fun, especially because the layouts are so great. You've got you know gog's image reflected in Spider-Man's eyes. You've got like these diagonal cuts into the page. There's a moment where Boomerang like hurls the collar into the stratosphere. And Spider-Man seems to be like bending all of space to 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 catch it. And it, like to me, it was a great showcase of the like elasticity, not just of his webbing, but of like his body. He's like all contorted out of all, you know, uh, normal means to grab this boomerang in the collar and reassemble it before throwing it back on Gog, who is currently upside down in the panel and and king konging his way up the side of a building <laughs> you know this is uh, uh you know gleason just having a ton of fun and you know it's what comics can do and and i thought it was really exciting if i wasn't entirely hooked narratively 
obviously kind of the 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 affection and and emotional attachment to Gog from certainly from Spider-Man slash Peter's standpoint, you know, those threads truly haven't been connected here through this narrative. I mean, this is the first we've heard of Gog since, you know, the reboot of the series post-COVID or not post-COVID, but post-COVID break. But like even beyond that, like for me, as much fun as this whole sequence is, to me, like it kind of got solved a little too cleanly and easily. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to set this up where whatever you want to say about Kingpin's motivations and logic here, it's 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 to give a sense of loss and stakes. And it's like, you know, not only does the, the deadliest assassin in Marvel Comics miss the shot, but like, it's like, okay, well, you know, he got the collar off, which is a problem, but, you know, we solved that within a few, a few pages too. You know what I mean? Does that, does that kind of track with you as well? I mean, did you feel like this was kind of cleaned up a little too quickly? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the bullseye thing is interesting because like it, it was my understanding that he intended to hit the collar. But but maybe well, not. That would I mean, make like, sense then, you know, because <laughs> he doesn't miss. That's the whole point, <laughs> right? But, th- but at the same time, it's like would bull- like Bullseye is a cold killer. Like it does seem weird to utilize that character just to like knock off this the collar from this monster. I'm I'm not exactly again that gets to the point I was saying earlier, which is like I don't really understand fully understand Kingpin's play here. Like he knows that Boomerang cares about Gog, so he's gonna let. Gog loose on New York and potentially like, you know, destroy a bunch of Manhattan Billy. Like, is he, is he looking to follow up on this and sue them for destruction? Is he looking to take the like online fame that Gog is slowly accruing and turn it sour by making him a public menace? That does not really seem to be a part of it here. Although that seems to be the more direct Thing you could get out of taking these actions instead of just like angering Boomerang so Boomerang will come at Kingpin. To me, that's just like, it, it's so circuitous. There, There is no really like thinking about like, hey, maybe it's uh, irresponsible of us to have this creature living in our home that can just like, it gets its collar off, it can destroy it. And this becomes a responsibility, but also a like way that someone can extort us or manipulate us in some way and should we be posting pictures i think you and i were critical of that peter of this in the last issue which is would he really be okay with boomerang taking pictures of gog and blasting it all over the internet that he's living with an alien in his apartment i'm not (laughs) entirely sure but to, to your point about spidey reminiscing about gog there's like a half page here of spidey's falling with the now shrunken gog which I think is a really great payoff of him like crashing dramatically into the card and the scene. I thought that was funny and clever, but none of that worked for me because we haven't seen Peter with Gog. And, you know, I know the book did not intend to be delayed several months because of COVID, but even without COVID, this would have been like a nine month gap since the last time we'd even seen Gog or gotten accustomed to the idea that Gog was living with Peter and it's a lot to ask us, I think, to invest in that relationship entirely. Although we had that big issue of investing in Gog, I care about Gog. I, right, I, I just right. don't know that but, I care but, about but Peter's Peter relationship. Gog. Certainly, is is slippery here. It's not like as he was getting you know murdered and resurrected by Kindred, he was you know thinking in addition about MJ, like oh, and my my pet alien Gog, I miss him. <laughs> <laughs> what is he going to think when he sees that I've been murdered? 
four hundred times consecutively. <laughs> what what a what a what a cutaway to, yeah, right. to <laughs> the death of Spider Man. But what about Gog? What about Gog? <laughs> so 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 speaking of you know sledgehammer of plot type developments, you know we have this this other scene after the Gog scene with Randy and Robbie. Let's telegraph here. I mean, we know that we're we're getting kind of a gang war type story and and Tombstone, you know, aka Lonnie Lincoln is going to be central in it and of course Tombstone has a relationship with with Robbie Robertson, so and Randy is dating Janice Lincoln, Tombstone's daughter. So like I mean, you know, this is all all clearly coming to some kind of a head, but to that point, like, you know, Randy is kind of venting to dad about this 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 crackpot relationship he's in and and robbie not knowing the details of course is like i think a little a, a little spice and opposites is, is a good thing and i'm like <laughs> real i mean like you know rand robbie is uh, to me robbie has long been the voice of of reason and stability in this book and and not that i expected him to necessarily be like you know, you need to dump this girl, but like, you know, it, it just it's such a convenient plot development that that Robbie would, you know, give his blessing to his son to keep pursuing a relationship with a woman that he's clearly at odds with because the woman happens to be the daughter of his of Robbie's mortal enemy. I mean, again, the convenience factor is just way too high here. <laughs> I'm okay with the convenience factor. It's that kind of a classic, like, look who's coming to dinner kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I know. You know, I mean, like, I, I, I'm okay with that. It's a kind of like a... I, I mean, always call it sitcom-y when they do it in this book. You know, it feels oh. very, you know, like Three's Company sitcom-y on me, you know? <laughs> I'm okay with it because, like, at its essence, like, these comics are soap operas. And, you know, to me, like, that that's a, that's a fun setup that I want to see pay off and... I, I, I'm here for the dramatic irony of Randy leaving her, if not for Robbie's intervention. To me, that's the kind of like clever thing that, you know, it's, it's fun to see play out. You know, we know it's going to happen. Uh, uh, you know, like we're going to get to this. So you might as well, like, you know, dig the knife in a little bit deeper while, while, while you're there. I was OK with that. And also, like, Robbie's the same guy that, like, let's be honest, knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and hasn't said anything about it for several decades. Like the guy is not without shaking up the order of things, you know, and, and, and you know, but, or maybe he's just been very displeased with Rob, uh, Randy's dating history, given, uh, you know, everything that happened with Nora Winters as, we, you know, will eventually play out in this scene when, when Jonah uh, re-enters the, uh, the picture here, ranting and raving about the success of threats and menaces. <laughs> Obviously, Jonah is is there to gloat, but also he, he, you know, there to get Robbie's approval. And Robbie, being the kind of you know the principled person that he is, isn't giving it, which is 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 a funny development for sure, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a hundred percent what this is. It's you know, it's it's seeking approval that's masked in bravado which i think has always been the relationship between jonah and and robbie i think jonah knows that robbie is really the only the the, the true heart and soul of the daily bugle yeah and does keep jonah in check and and while i think jonah is doing something more positive than he has in the past with not making up lies about spider-man he is engaging in the same kind of like cheap meritless journalism that he kind of has been known for in like editorial pages, if you will. 
you know, I mean, he this guy can operate on the same time as the guy from the I cover the waterfront of thing, but he is much more of the like sensationalist. And I think this is neat to see these two characters kind of coming at a head from in terms of ethics, you know, like we've got Jonah truly unhinged to just do his most sensationalist stuff ever, even if it may be on the side of our protagonist and, and Robbie with the dying, how much is he willing to, to ride the dying beast in, of ethics into his journalistic and financial grave? You know, it's, it's where newspapers find themselves today. I think it's interesting to see it reflected in these two characters. Leaving that scene, we, we, we get the resolution to the Gog, which is that Boomerang and, and Spider-Man agree to leave him with MJ. And, yeah, you know, okay, so <laughs> here's like one of my issues, I guess, which is like, you know, again, it's not entirely clear how much Boomerang knows about Spidey's identity here. I, I don't know. Like, it, it seems funny to me that like, you know, Boomerang, who seems particularly attached to Gog here, would just be so okay with him being with MJ. I know MJ dates Peter, but, you know, am I making sense here? It just, it's, again, it's one of these, like, little links where it's like, I don't, you know, we're not led to believe that Boomerang actually knows that, that Peter is Spider-Man, but, like, when stuff like this happens, how how does he not figure it out, or or, or how does the writing, the the creative team expect us as the readers not to be like, oh, come on. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is like, this is suspension of disbelief to a whole new level in terms of who understands what, no matter how much of an airhead Fred Myers is like, I don't know. What what is MJ doing hanging out in the apartment without Peter? Like where is Peter in all of this? Right. Uh, Exactly. That would be the first question I would ask. Yeah. Yeah, it's comics. It's a soap opera, like you were saying. But like, it, 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 there's just too many loose ends here to be like. And I'm not saying like we need to have this big serious reveal to Boomerang. In fact, I'd prefer if we didn't. Like, I, I you know, like how many people do, do really truly need to know who, that Peter is Spider Man? Like, it's getting it's getting to like the pre brand new day era levels again in terms of that. And I'm I I, I don't generally like that. You know, like I'm not looking for that. But at the same token, it's just. It just seems kind of insulting to just expect the readers to totally be like, yeah, okay, that's cool. I don't, I'm not going to connect that thread here. <laughs> do, do we, do, I'm curious, do you think that by the end of this whole Fred Myers thing, which, I, you know, obviously I think it's going to be a character that runs through most of Nick Spencer's run, if, you know, if not at least have like a major arc that concludes in it, do you see this building towards a reveal of Peter's identity? To, to Boomerang. I mean, they're, they're roommates. There is a lot of dramatic potential there, but I don't know that it's been really milked for that. So like my, my, my answer would be no, I don't think it is, but I'm curious to hear what you, what you think. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't think it has either. I think like the way it's been built to this point is that we're kind of operating under the assumption, frankly, that Boomerang is too stupid to know. And I think like if they kept operating on that and then like in one of the final resolutions to this arc, we find out that Boomerang actually has known the whole time. I feel like that would be a a kind of a fun reveal in that in that vein. But like that requires us to not be so ridiculous about the connections here. And and to me, like this kind of under undercuts that kind of potential reversal by Spencer, uh, uh, you know, in terms of who knows what, like. You know, it's one thing when 
Boomerang is at a at a bar of villains with Peter, and Peter's knowledge of Spider Man kind of saves the day. I I think that's kind of fun. But when it's like, you know, now like Peter's personal life is intersecting with Boomerang and Spider Man's professional life, if you want to call it that. I don't know. It just seems like it's it's a little too cute. And it, whatever the resolution is, I'm not sure if I'm going to be entirely satisfied by it. You know, like I don't I don't know if I need to have this dramatic scene of Peter taking off his mask to boomerang, you know? <laughs> like, I, I just don't see what the payoff with that would be. I do want to say about Gleason's art, the one character out of costume that really hasn't connected with me uh, in his stuff is his MJ. I mean, if I can just be so, like, crass, I would say, like, his MJ is H-A-W-T hot, you know? <laughs> like, she is an attractively drawn character, but the, his character has none of that kind of like Ramita flair that I think really defines the MJ character, the kind of broad face. She just looks like kind of like a like a hot chick with red hair. And, you know, I appreciate the things like the stylistic design that's on her jeans and, and these various things. But like if you were to show me this character, I wouldn't immediately jump to MJ. And so like I think it's missing some of the like whether it's the dimples or whatever it is, like something iconographic about MJ that makes her stand apart is absent from his design of the character. You know, I think about like Otley's MJ, who is like so Romita, you know, like really defined by that Romita look. I would love to see this character kind of come back a little bit more to the to the middle ground. She's just kind of nebulous to me in the, in this drawing. I think Kamakoli used to really punch up the hotness of MJ a bit. And it's, it, it can, you know, I don't know if we need to go quite that far with it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, this is still a character that was based on Anne Margaret, you know? <laughs> well, well Anne Margaret is one of the hottest people to ever exist. True. I'm, I'm, okay, I, I'm okay. Yeah, with, no, I got serious saying. Yeah. I'm okay with her being hot. I just like, it doesn't like in terms of like, an, like iconic iconography, like that character doesn't look like MJ to me. You, you like, and it's not because of her attractiveness. It's just like that. It's just like there, there are not the defining characteristics other than maybe just having red hair that I look at it and go, that looks like MJ, you know, like Peter could look like any white dude with short brown hair, but I think we can all identify a drawing of like Peter Parker when we see it. Like when I think Peter Parker, I think about like, like Ron friends is particularly awkward and lanky looking Peter Parker as like, the most Peter Parker, the character ever got drawn, you know, other than maybe Steve Ditko. And then there's like a, like a spectrum where like, I think Bagley probably sits in the dead center, you know, for, for most of it uh, between like Ramita and, and friends and, and Ditko to me, this MJ just is like, it's just kind of divorced from the character. You know, upon the resolution of this, we kind of set up the, the, the boomerang and Kingpin, feud heating up another notch and you know boomerang you know let i mean what else can you say spencer has been writing boomerang fantastically going all the way back to superior foes you know like there's no no question about it this is some fun stuff i mean you know i i never really contemplated reading amazing spider-man and finding myself cheering the hardest for boomerang but that's where we're at so this kingpin stuff kind of evolves some more i mean we we, we i guess we get a little more insight to his plan if you call it that. But we also, you know, sound the kindred alarm again. We kind of get this 
you know, Kingpin talking smack to Kindred, like, I'm, you know, you spurned me, but I'm going to get my way. I don't know, man. This just seems like a lot to, like, get Kingpin to bring back, you know, to get someone to bring back Vanessa. I don't know, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll tell your wife. super convoluted. <laughs> I would tell your wife that you, you, you draw the line at convolution to bringing her back from the dead. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's like, I mean, how many times has, has Kingpin and I, like I said, it's, it, we've dealt with this before with Kingpin needing to get Vanessa back, whether she's alive or dead. This, this just this seems like, you know, this is not one of his most, I think, clear and, and concise plans to that end. And, and I also don't quite get like why Kingpin would be going to such these lengths just because of what Kindred did, you know, it's still one of the loosest ends in that whole dynamic that I don't feel has been effectively tied for me. It's a little bit murky. Like, I don't know if he, if he needs Kindred still to pull this plan off or if he's planning on circumventing him with the lifeline tablets and things like that. I, I don't know how those things all fit together. You're right. But also like, would it be the worst thing for people to let King Kingpin get what he wants and bring <laughs> Vanessa back? Like, wouldn't that just solve everyone's problems? This guy is clearly tormented by this and he's taking it out on everybody else. Like, can he just retire? Like, just let him live his life with this undead woman. I, I've got no problems with that. Like, <laughs> just let the sociopath fine. have what he wants. You know? Right. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that would be the what end of it. What could possibly go wrong, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, he's going to get Vanessa back and then he'll quit, right? Isn't that how it always works? No. I don't know. I mean, there seemed to be a lot of opposition to, to giving a guy something that seems pretty non-destructive, but... You know, of course, it couldn't be that simple. I'm sure it's going to open some portal to ending the universe if he were to were to try to pull this off. So. There always has to be a catch with that. So, of course, Kingpin six tombstone on on Fred here, but you know, with the caveat and, and Dan, we, we we talked a little bit about this in our pre-show. The caveat of Peter Parker is off limits, and I, do we know why that's the case? Because I don't. And, you know, maybe an editor's note would have worked here or something. But like, I know Spider-Man was off limits for a while, but why Peter Parker? And we, we're pretty sure that Kingpin doesn't know that Peter is Spider-Man, right? Right. The, the only instance where that may have been true was in family business, but Kingpin's memory was fried by the end of that story. So, you know, in, in you know, the present time, yeah, he doesn't know. You know, maybe he's just really cares about not, hurting the roommate of of boomerang but uh, yeah I, I don't quite know what why that is and it's spelled out like i don't think i would have questioned it if it wasn't spelled out and that that's why i'm curious about it right well you can't say it's because it's not hurting the roommate because you know frankly lonnie lincoln is then saying well i can't hurt peter but he didn't say anything about the other one who of course is you know randy's randy and and his nemesis's kid so, you know, like Tombstone is going over there and you kind of feel the mortal danger for Randy there, uh, which I, I, I appreciated the stakes of that. And I kind of knew what was coming next. It was a good setup to get there because it's like, oh, no, Randy's in trouble. But like, I don't know. Again, the, 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 the logic here is very loosely connected. And and that's a little disappointing because like it, the, the stakes don't work there unless we know clearly why kingpin says peter is a no-no you know like it, it, it's either all or nothing if 
It's just I don't want to mess with anyone but Boomerang. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so Robbie is also on the case because they've got like media on it. They're they're following like a, a Lonnie or a Janice Lincoln. And he begins to recognize that they're going to somewhere familiar, an apartment that he's aware of. And then there's this like beautifully constructed reveal. Like I think the pacing, the visual pacing of this is excellent. As you know, you see like Randy, like looking right out at the reader and Janice pulling her mask off. And then you get this full splash page of the two in this beautiful drawing, uh, kissing on the rooftop as everybody is shocked, you know, that these two families' lives are going to intersect with each other again. It is um, Montague's and Capulets here, Dan. <laughs> right. I, I'm curious to see how this played for people that like aren't aware of, I think, a fairly obscure Spider-Man story from Spectacular Spider-Man, what, three decades ago? You know, this is another kind of point where an editor's note or some kind of thing would be like, go read these issues. That might fill you in on why this has significance. Go put money um, in Jerry Conway's pockets. <laughs> right, right. I mean, for us, I would say like that reveal really worked for me. Like, I mean, it would have worked even more if I didn't know that these two were together in some way or there was some like it wasn't so obviously telegraphed that they were going to get back together. Or if that was like a, you know, a, a big, I, I figured they were off and on for a while now. So like there wasn't a narrative surprise, but it was a joyful surprise. One, to see the beautiful art and the way it was laid out. And two, just to see Lonnie and Robbie, you know, react to it. I think there's a certain pleasure in, in that. But I do think it would have been really cool to like, you know, in an alternate universe where we don't know who Randy is dating for even longer, because I don't think much was done with that initially like keep it a secret for a long time you know and then have this be the reveal that he's been dating you know janice i think that would have been a really cool moment for the reader for lonnie and robbie and but obviously i think it still works the way that it is you have any other thoughts about this issue that we haven't hit upon you know in terms of the ongoing story i did find this issue disappointing in that we got this brand new costume last issue and I think it still looks really cool here but I don't think this story takes advantage of the costume in any interesting way I mean especially this costume is going to be short-lived I would want every issue to utilize it in some interesting way and I felt like last issue we had this great setup to this story about like how this costume could be used and and Jonah and all of that seems to be jettisoned for this issue and this issue is, you know, fairly packed to the gills with, with you know, I wouldn't say it's like su- super charged with content, but I like the way it was paced. So I don't know what I would change. It did seem weird to me that that seemed to be the thrust of the story is this new, you know, relationship for Peter. And it's just not touched on at all here. We, we introduced this new plot device and then, you know, seemingly abandoned it. I mean, I'm sure we'll go back to it, but... You know, it, it would have been nice to kind of ride that development all the way through. Yeah, they 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 clearly wanted to work other things in, you know, more so. And you know, when you're dealing with what twenty two pages now, it's like you get what you get. Right, <laughs> ran out right. of room, ran out of time, kids. Sorry. <laughs> it's the kind of thing where the next issue could open with like Jonah at a computer, and he's been like watching the events of these 
issues the whole time. It just didn't feel need to comment on it. And I would be like, okay, fine. It, it doesn't bother me that much, but it is weird to like spend so much time setting that up last issue and then not deliver on, uh, on that in some way. These books are just, you know, uh, uh, to quote Dan Slott's thing, which is like every page is packed with content. You know, I think Spencer is, is giving us our money's worth uh, at the very least. Yeah. Do you want to give a grade on this? Yeah, sure. I think this one is a B minus for me. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It's probably a lower end of B minus <laughs> for me, uh, but but it's a B minus. This is this was fun. It just had its issues, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, it was fun and not like super memorable, but like I, I'll take fun and not memorable. You know, uh, uh, for like in between issues, you know, you know, Sp- Spider Man and most comic runs are built on the back of fun but not memorable. Uh, you know, that that's fairly okay with me. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Dan, let's take it home. So it is, of course, that time, time for all of the good things to come to an end. In this case, it is our show that is coming to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Busema, and Ray Sumzer. And our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider-Madge. This episode was originally released on Patreon as a live stream hangout with us back when the comic was first released. So, if you'd like to help support our show's continued existence and these very reviews while joining us on the live stream, why not head on over to our Patreon and sign up? Also, Dan, we've got our 300th episode approaching fast, so cue the 300th episode alarm. Uh, so if you, the listener at home, want to join us for that episode, why not give us a ring at 9 Red Goblin and leave us a voicemail about your memories of the show or just send us an audio file to AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com. If you leave your name and where you're calling from, we'll play it on our show as we look back on our last 100 episodes. So, Mark, until your new dog Parker grows to gargantuan size and destroys large sections of Manhattan, what's our motto? That is a terrifying thought, Dan. Uh, Our motto, of course, is with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't don't miss the next installment.